Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, COVID-19 Testing, Promises, Problems, and Potential, features Peter Antevi and Rick Pescator and is sponsored by Boundtree. Hello, and welcome to the latest in EMS World's series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is COVID-19 Testing, Promises, Problems, and Potential. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World. We're very happy to have you joining us today. We would like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. And at the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. And today we are very pleased to welcome our two featured speakers. Dr. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, EMS physician, and founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards. He serves as medical director for Davie Fire Rescue, Coral Springs Parkland Fire Rescue, and Southwest Ranches Fire Rescue, as well as associate medical director for Palm Beach County Fire Rescue in Florida. Dr. Antevi was appointed to serve as lead pediatric EMS specialist and consultant for the highly influential Metropolitan EMS Medical Directors Coalition, and we are also proud to have Dr. Antevi as a member of the EMS World Editorial Advisory Board. And he is joined today by Dr. Rick Pescator. Dr. Pescator is Chief Physician for the State of Delaware Division of Public Health. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. He has been involved in EMS for over 15 years, serving in roles from volunteer EMT to medical director for law enforcement, BLS, and ALS agencies. We're very happy to have these two leading experts joining us today. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to our presenters. Dr. Antevi, Dr. Pescator, thanks again for joining us today, and please take it away. Jonathan, thank you so much, and thanks to uh, EMS World and, of course, to Boundary for sponsoring. And uh, Rick, thank you so much for coming on today and really uh, being an expert on this panel here with respect to COVID-19 testing. First of all, how are you doing today, Rick? I'm well. Uh, it's uh, really my pleasure to join you. I, I, I know we've spoken about this endlessly before that uh, pieces like this, piece where we can share education among uh, medical and EMS professionals around the world are, are truly tremendous additions to uh, the fight against COVID-19. Well, uh, that's the truth. And I can tell you that um, after speaking to you and, and knowing your background and knowing how well you know the topic, you're, in my opinion, definitely the expert, and I'm looking forward to hearing your opinions on these. As a medical director, I'm struggling with all the information coming at me. I feel like I'm drinking through a fire hose, and a lot of people are depending on me to give them the right information. So 
I'm trying to dig and dig and dig to get to the truth. And I know that you've done a lot of work in this arena. And so looking forward to kicking this off. So uh, let's get started. And so uh, for disclosures, uh, I did so much digging, I ended up uh, working with a manufacturer to try to evaluate the validity of these serologic tests. So I have that as a disclosure. I have no relevant financial disclosures. All right, excellent, let's get started. So as far as an overview, what we've tried to accomplish today, we've been through the introduction, we'll get to the objectives here, but essentially, what is the overview of all this testing? If you're an EMS leader, what do you really need to know about all these tests coming your way? What types of tests are available? How are you gonna implement these tests at your agency or even across your city? And I think some case examples, which we'll start with, we'll talk about some preliminary data, and then we'll talk about uh, a protocol that Rick has developed at the very end of it, and then we'll open it up to some question and answers. Um, I'm gonna start with a case um, that I recently encountered. Um, of course, this is not her photo, but um, Rick, I wanted to kind of throw this case at you because I think that this is just one of the reasons why this information is so important. I have a 30-year-old female city employee, history of hypertension, uh, she's on a high blood pressure, high blood pressure medication, uh, Losartan, and she presents with the classic COVID symptoms. So of course, she wants to know what to do. And this is about, a, uh, let's say about a month ago now. So we sent her for testing and lo and behold, the test came back in five days. <laughs> so um, her test was positive. And of course she's quarantined at home. And uh, now we're 17 days in and she wants to get back to work. She really wants to get back to work. She's feeling well. Um, and I'm asking her how she's doing. And she said, you know, I, I still have a couple of symptoms. Maybe I feel a little achy. Temperature is 99.1. So to so Rick, how, how would you advise me in that situation? Um, do I, do I um, use a non-testing strategy? I mean, what are the strategies out there that I can look into for this particular person? Yeah, exactly. So we want to get the people back to work and CDC does produce two different strategies for discontinuation of isolation uh, and subsequent return to work. That's just as you allude, a test-based strategy or a non-test-based strategy. So a test-based strategy is one that would require first resolution of symptoms and uh, cessation of fever without the use of uh, fever-reducing medications and two negative nasopharyngeal PCR swabs sent greater than 24 hours apart back to back. So that's quite a bit, but basically two negative swabs uh, and then you can get back in the fight. That's the test-based strategy. The non-test-based strategy, as far as the CDC has put out, is a, a combination of uh, resolution of fever and significant improvement in respiratory symptoms. Um, once that has been the case for three days, that is the CDC's uh, definition of the non-test-based strategy for discontinuation of isolation. Now, we will talk a little bit more, I think, about just what that means. And it's worth noting that there are places that um, are being more conservative than that. And I think as we get into the pearls and pitfalls of every different test, uh, we can talk about that a little more. But those are the two strategies that are at least put forth by CDC. 
Perfect. And, and that's exactly what we have going on. But here, here comes the issue. She's got a PCR. She returned to get a PCR. It's negative. But now she's feeling achy. So according to what you're saying, uh, even though her PCR is negative, she still has symptoms. So I should leave her out of work, correct? Well, certainly. So if you're progressing along the test-based strategy, first off, she's going to need two of those tests back-to-back that are negative. Uh, but really, until you, you can't even enter that pathway until you've had significant resolution in symptoms. And, and we all know that symptoms are not symptoms, and uh, they can be produced by patients in all different ways, which uh, leads to a little bit of inconsistency or trouble or, or discomfort using different pathways. Uh, but certainly if a patient has persistent myalgias or, or really most particularly fever, uh, that's somebody who should not yet enter the test-based strategy. Uh, perfect. Now that's a great setup. And at the very end, we'll come back to exactly what happened to her. This case really threw me for a loop. And I think that our discussion coming forward here will help everyone. But really, um, from my perspective, a lot of this information has been uh, things that We've had to really put our heads down and create protocols. We've used what you've given us as well, um, but it, it hasn't been easy, that's for sure. So I wanted you to discuss, Rick, you know, I know you, there's, there's more tests that are available than I have on this slide, but um, you, you, you know, quite uh, nicely spoke about two different strategies, direct and indirect tests. I'm hoping you can go ahead and give us some information on what your thoughts are on that. Sure. So um, when we talk about testing, there's there's so many tests that are now starting to come out there. And there are some people who gradate these into different categories. One category that I was just reading is uh, molecular tests versus uh, immunologic tests. Um, and that's fine. Um, but there are more tests out there. So the way I like to think of it is this dichotomy of direct tests versus indirect tests. And a direct test would be one that looks directly for evidence of the virus. So in the top uh, box there, you have a patient who's getting a nasal swab, and, and ostensibly that would be used for a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction, a type of test that looks directly for viral RNA. In the bottom left, that's an Abbott ID now. That is a, a PCR in a box, an instant um, uh, PCR that takes five to 15 minutes. And can deliver sort of PCR results at the point of care. There are other direct tests as well, and we'll discuss sort of rapid antigen testing. We'll talk about uh, bioelectronics, an exciting new uh, paradigm. And then there's the indirect test, tests that would use um, not necessarily presence of the virus, but presence of something that speaks toward the presence of the virus. Um, so up in the top corner there, you have an immunoassay, a point of care test to evaluate for the presence of uh, antibodies, which would be released by the body in the setting of an immune response. And there in the bottom right, there's a, a tube of blood ostensibly uh, for an ELISA or maybe a microparticle assay, a more machine-based sort of lab centralized uh, test to evaluate for antibodies. So, so many different tests, uh, but ultimately it comes down to there's not one, there is a really true uh, quiver of uh, uh, within which we can keep our testing arrows. So Rick, if you had your crystal ball out, would you say that going into the future, let's say the next uh, month to even uh, eight to nine months or further, um, you think one test is going to win out or do you think that 
certain people, depending on where you are and what your resources are, you'll have uh, multiple different tests that you'll be using. What's your, what's your crystal ball say on that? Well, I think you lobbed me a bit of a softball there because certainly as we move forward, there will be a place for nearly all of these tests. And the, the key here will be understanding how and when to implement them. And then beyond that, uh, how exactly to uh, interpret those tests in the right clinical setting. Right. And that, that's what I was getting at, because I do hear a lot here locally and other people who call me and they want that one test, right? That one silver bullet that's just going to get everything fixed and they're going to figure out immunity. They're going to figure out who has disease. And I think that as we go through here today, we're going to realize that um, there's things like the history and physical exam, evaluating the patient. And it, it's almost the analogy of when, when we see people in the emergency department and they say, I have a fever. We don't take them right upstairs to the operating room to take out their appendix. We'll do a history of physical exam. And we'll actually order some of the appropriate tests. And then with all that information together, we'll make a decision, just like we're going to have to make decisions on um, who needs to get quarantined, isolated, who can, go, uh, who can come back to work and who can't come back to work. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a softball, but I wanted to at least point out to all of our uh, people watching out there today that it's going to take more than one piece of information to make really good decisions moving forward. And so really, I wanted to start here with the indirect test. So I know you're an expert in this area and so forth. So take us through uh, the antibody test and some of the other tests we have here on the screen. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when we talk about these indirect tests and immunologic tests, there are a number of them. And we can start really at the top where we talk about point of care immunoassays. And this is really how we started to talk more broadly about testing paradigms. And everybody has seen mention of these, these rapid antibody tests that you can find in any scientific or lay article that's published recently. And what you find is that the, the messaging is all over the map. And the reason is, is just as you say, the tests can't be just sort of thrown into the mix. They have to be applied uh, sort of scholarly, they have to be applied genuinely, and they have to be interpreted by somebody who knows how to interpret them. But a point of care immunoassay is just that. It's a point of care, it's a cartridge upon which you drop some blood, you take a few drops of buffer, and you watch it move via capillary action up the membrane, and you get an answer right then and there about the presence of IgG or IgM. There's ELISA, that's, uh, you know, thinking back to my med school days, I believe it's enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay or something like that. That and microparticle immunoassays, which we can really think as ELISA, you know, stage two, the sort of new ELISA 2.0. Um, these are lab machine-based, uh, testing equipment-based uh, tests that look for the presence of antibodies within the blood. Uh, and then we have a, a point-of-care antigen testing here, which is really actually probably more of a direct test. A point-of-care antigen would evaluate directly for presence of the antigen, presence of, uh, if we were using maybe an SSA, that would be the spike protein that you're looking for of a whole piece of virus that's hanging out there. Or maybe an N-assay antigen test, which looks exactly for a nucleocapsid uh, piece of virus that's hanging out there. So those are four different tests right off the bat, each of those which has some advantages, each of those which has some disadvantages, uh, but already we're seeing that the 
the concept of doing a test is already a bit muddied by the fact by which of these four, knowing that we have a few more to go through. Right, and that, uh, I have to apologize. Uh, this is a, this, the point of care antigen testing should be under the direct testing, and that was my mistake. Uh, but let me ask you a question for the ELISA and the microparticle immunoassay. Um, are we able to quantify how much antibody is in that, is in that person's uh, blood or not? Yeah, absolutely we are. And you hit the nail on the head there in that that is one of the advantages of those tests as compared to, you know, for example, a point-of-care immunoassay, which does not quantify an antibody titer. So when we get an ELISA or we use sort of a, a microparticle immunoassay, we can get that titer, uh, 1 to 320, 1 to 960, whatever it is, and, and get an idea of not just the presence of uh, antibodies, but uh, the um, amount of antibody. Uh, and that drives very much what we might think about uh, with some other uses of antibody tests. Awesome, that's a great explanation, so I appreciate that. And so um, we talked about the, these are also called serology tests. And again, it's looking for the antibodies that are developing to the infection. And we're gonna go through this in a minute, but there is the IgM and the IgG antibodies, uh, as opposed to the direct test, like as you talked about. Um, now, I have a comment here on the second one is that once these are fine-tuned and fully validated to very important points, uh, that they can be used for evidence of past infection and or immunity. So there's been a lot of hoopla on media, and I think the FDA is kind of taking over here to try and figure all this out. But can you go through this whole issue of fine-tuning things and fully validating things so that everyone understands how important that is? Yeah, certainly. So listen, uh, as we've moved so quickly through this incredibly dynamic environment, um, we've seen so much that has changed and we see you know, a different world than we lived in beforehand, of course, obviously. Well, when we talk about the use of these rapid lateral flow immunoassays, these point of care tests, uh, there is a number of tests, there are a number of tests out there uh, that have not undergone a, a rigorous FDA screening uh, route, or, or, and they lack any sort of uh, certification or approval by the FDA. They even lack what's called an EUA, an emergency use authorization. Uh, only a handful of tests have that EUA at present. Well, that's fine. And what we have seen is that the FDA has put out guidance that allows different methods of implementing these tests without that FDA EUA. Um, but what it means is that it becomes incumbent upon not the FDA, but upon the end user, really, uh, to make sure that these tests are properly validated. And you and I have seen this, that there are plenty of tests mm -hmm. out there that are not validated, they are not fine-tuned, and they are, in fact, dangerous to implement in the clinical setting. So when we talk about using lateral flow immunoassays, using rapid antibody tests, that's fantastic. That's all well and good. But to implement a test that lacks authorization from the FDA without implementing a rigorous fine-tuning and full validation program, you're doing yourself a disservice, but more importantly, you're doing real disservice to patients and potential harm. Right, I think that's why it's so wonderful that your role, uh, you know, in in your state 
you're actually leading the charge. It's, uh, I think, very important for all the people listening out there that these tests shouldn't just be going to lay people or people who, quite frankly, don't know how to read them, don't know what to do with them, and can't speak to the patient. So uh, very well said. I, I appreciate you doing that. So interestingly, um, and we hear it every night on the news, and we hear from the CDC that the CDC is using these tests to, quote, monitor contacts of infected people and to identify individuals who, due to mild infection, may not have known they were infected. And so they're being very specific with how they think they can use these tests. Now, I know that you've done a lot of work in this area. Is that how you feel also that using these tests should have in mind a certain population or a group uh, with the knowledge that you have? So can you, can you kind of uh, frame that a little bit for us? Absolutely. So implementation of these tests needs to be done in a well-defined clinical scenario to answer a well-defined clinical question. And that question doesn't always have to be the same one, but implementing these tests with good recognition of their pros and cons, their specificity and sensitivity, their negative and positive predictive values is truly important. So when we talk about implementation of these rapid tests, the way that the CDC describes it is very much similar to many ways that um, my own group has implemented these tests. So we have seen implementation of these tests during outbreak investigations. We've seen implementation of these tests uh, in persons who had high risk exposures, and we can use them as a risk stratification tool, not necessarily a diagnostic tool. And each time when we implement these tests, we do so to answer a very specific clinical question. That is, okay, I know the baseline disease prevalence in this area or the baseline pretest probability of an individual patient, if I apply a lateral flow immunoassay, if I apply rapid serology, what does the answer tell me? And what's more, what do I have to do to ensure that I'm not putting this patient at any risk of harm? So often we may follow this test up with a PCR in, significant, in certain scenarios, may follow it up with a different type of test. But I really do appreciate what you what, um, uh, the CDC spokesperson is saying here that the CDC uses these tests in well-defined and accurate and sort of academically genuine clinical scenarios. Awesome. And that's such an important message for everyone out there who's thinking about this. This is not a willy-nilly type situation. Really well thought out and very well said, Rick. Thanks for that. Okay. Now, Rick, I have here on this uh, image here, um, what is the image of one of these pads, and I'll, I'll actually uh, play a video next, but um, I think it's always interesting when you see these little cassettes, these cartridges, it looks like a piece of plastic. There's actually more to them. Now, without going into major detail, uh, can you just take us through this real quick and kind of give us an explanation, and you started to earlier, but how these uh, immunoassays work? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, it's it's not cosmic science, right? So this is something that I think we all engaged in at some point in high school or college chemistry, um, and it's capillary action. It's, it's seizing capillary action and, and taking advantage of it. So what we see here is obviously the adhesive card, and you see the conjugation pad right there in yellow, uh, which is a colloidal gold uh, substituent, and it lies on top of a nitrocellulose membrane. And uh, what the manufacturer has done is they have put uh, antigen conjugates that are um, just sort of sitting right there on top of the conjugation pad. 
when you place uh, COVID-19 antibody on the sample pad and add the, which would be in blood, and add the buffer to that, it will flow up the nitrocellulose membrane because of simple capillary action. Um, and if antibodies are present, they will bind the antigen that's sitting there on the con conjugation pad. Um, and as they travel up, they will trip uh, the either IgM line or IgG line as appropriate. Um, and certainly everything will trip the control line. Um, and that's as simple as they work. It's uh, the presence of an antibody will bind a, um, a conjugate and will trip the um, uh, IgM line or IgG line if it's there. Okay, so that's a great explanation, and I'll show a video next. But let me ask you a question. How could it be that company A and company B and company in California and company in China, how do they all have different tests? I mean, what is, what is so special about one test over the other that can perform better over another test? Yeah, so um, companies have to get the antigen conjugate, and they have to either use one that they have had in storage, perhaps not for the right virus. They have to uh, grow it in uh, the lab or in an animal. They have to pick an antigen conjugate that is uh, uh, directed at a specific antigen or group of antigens, just like we discussed previously. Um, so all of these are options and all of these will drive different types of production of these uh, cassettes. And then beyond that, there is, of course, you know, having the right uh, um, colloidal gold for the conjugation pad. There's having the right manufacturing process for the nitrocellulose membrane. Um, I have seen uh, tests that um, lack any ability to achieve capillary flow because they use sort of poorly made nitrocellulose on top of there. So, so many considerations that go into the individual manufacture of a, uh, of a single company's test. So uh, the next part is is these direct tests, and here I actually have the point of care antigen test here correctly. Look at that. Um, so Rick, I know you spoke about these um, already, but I have here five different tests. I have a PCR, a rapid PCR, a point of care PCR. Give us an explanation about why do we have so many PCRs up here? Yeah, so PCR, which is really what started uh, all of this and, and will continue to be a invaluable uh, addition and contribution to any testing algorithm. So PCR, polymerase chain reaction, takes viral RNA and amplifies it again and again and again and heats it up and, and, and just takes one copy of viral RNA and makes it a chameleon copies of viral RNA so that it can be easily detected by a PCR machine. And, that, and that's PCR, basically. Um, and, and that's what's most commonly used right now for the identification of the virus that causes COVID-19. So rapid PCR, um, we're going to use that to refer to the test that can uh, do this much more quickly than standard PCR. So standard PCR takes anywhere maybe two to six hours to run uh, a whole uh, sort of uh, soup to nuts PCR reaction. And that includes a number of things, including uh, you take sample. Uh, let's, if you don't mind, we can, we can back it up to the very beginning, which is I swab somebody's nose or throat and I put it into a sample collection kit with viral transport media or saline as may be the case. And that gets shipped off to a lab. When that arrives in a lab that's ready to do PCR, they have to take that out and they have to add an extraction reagent. 
the extraction reagent, which there's been limitation of, will break the virus into its pieces. It'll lice it down and uh, enable that free RNA to then enter the PCR process. So that'll be uh, put into any random PCR machine that your lab may have, and the appropriate reagents will be added to amplify it so that it can be detected. And that takes hours, and it can be extremely manpower intensive when it comes to individual extraction reactions. So a rapid PCR, maybe this is best thought of as like a Cepheid machine that perhaps your hospital may have, uh, breaks this down and does it a bit quicker, does it kind of all in one more often than not, and does it within about 45 minutes. That's pretty tremendous. And that's a, a fantastic addition to the diagnostic armamentarium. And you and I, when we work in the emergency department, often take advantage of rapid PCR. Maybe we do it for a rapid flu that's PCR-based. That's sort of one of the more common emergency department PCR-based tests that turns around quite quickly. Or maybe even a respiratory viral panel before COVID-19, <laughs> which we would turn around and, and you as a, as a pediatric ER doc, that's got to be right in your world. That's right. So um, the downside of that is it's often, you know, a relatively small volume of tests that can be done at any one time. And it, of course, requires extra it requires the appropriate reagents for the test to be run. And that can often be cartridge based. So point of care PCR, there's there's two of them out there right now, but the one that's most common is the, the Abbott ID now point of care PCR. It's PCR in a box. It's an incredible machine unbelievable science that is turns around a PCR reaction in anywhere from five to 15 minutes. And I have personally used this machine and it blows me away. It is absolutely tremendous, but it's severely limited in its availability of test cartridges. Um, and it's severely limited in its throughput. It can only run one test every five to 15 minutes, depending. So you can see where those limitations of each of those for the the big time PCR, those are logistically extremely challenging and costly. For rapid PCR, there's relatively low throughput, although not bad, and there are uh, reagent limitations. For point of care PCR, it's phenomenally available, but there are profound limitations in throughput and limitations in reagent availability. So all those are important, but also have important drawbacks. Bioelectronics, I think we threw in there for a little bit of funsies. So this is uh, an on-the-horizon test, bioelectronics, where you, they can use – this is way over my head, Pete. So this is like electrical signals that get transmitted through a, a patient's exhaled breath to identify an electrical signal consistent with viral presence. And it's exciting, and it's interesting, and it's really fantastic, but it's certainly something that's more on-the-horizon. Uh, than anything that'll likely be uh, uh, put into practice with any significant uh, amount anytime soon. And it's like a breathalyzer for uh, for COVID, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's similar. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I think maybe a good way to think about it, and it's exciting because you can think of all the ways that you can mobilize that. Um, but uh, I would be surprised if that plays any significant role moving forward, at least in the immediate time. Right. Then there's the point of care antigen test. 
So point of care antigen tests, I think we're all familiar with either as patients or providers. This is a rapid strep, right? This is a rapid strep that any one of us with letters behind our name has done many cabillion times. <laughs> and any one of us without letters behind our name has probably had done to us many cabillion times. Um, and it's as simple as that. It's a swab that looks for that antigen and reports it out if it's there. Um, and are, are they being made right now? Yes, I have actually trialed some of these uh, tests. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think they have the diagnostic ability that we need for them quite yet, but that could change by the minute, just like anything that has to do with COVID-19. Wow, I tell you what, there's so many different options, and I think people hear the word PCR. First of all, in EMS, we think of the patient care report. <laughs> um, I, had to, I had to rewrite one of my... Uh, one of my one of my uh, uh, letters to the department, and they said, "Why do you keep talking about our electronic patient care report?" Uh, <laughs> but right, so there's, there's a lot of information out there, and I think that this is really clarifying things. So, um, the, the the PCR, and you, you mentioned a few of these already, uh, the pros and the cons of of these PCR. So the pros is actually looking for the virus itself and not some um, other marker, right? Um, but talk about the, 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 the early um, uh, aspects of making a diagnosis here versus another test. Well, you know, so diagnosis uh, is never a one-shot one deal. And, and we should move away from the concept that a test gives us a diagnosis because there's always room for interpretation of that test. Take the most obvious test there is, a pregnancy test, right? which is the kind of the most binary test there can be. But we all know that a pregnancy test uh, is pretty context dependent, right? It should probably be done in a female. And uh, we have all seen pregnancy tests that were done in males. And we've all seen pregnancy tests that were done in males and were positive. And those males aren't pregnant. They have something else. And, and, and that's a little bit flippant. Um, but I think it's important because it helps us understand that a test is not in itself a diagnostic maneuver. It has to be done in the appropriate context. And the problem with PCR is it can be a false negative, quote unquote, if done too early and viral load is far too low. It can be a false positive in some senses that people will shed virus and dead viral particles long after their true infectivity period. But if that viral RNA is there, the PCR will find it and amplify it. We know that the sensitivity of PCR fall, of many PCR assays, falls below what we would like it to be. And there's been numbers that have been bandied about anywhere between 65 and 75% sensitivity. Some uh, more in-house assays that boast a higher sensitivity. But the false negative problem of PCR has been a real one. I just got a patient report um, of a patient that I ran through a battery of tests just yesterday. Um, and this patient had a positive point-of-care PCR, an Abbott ID now. This patient had a positive point-of-care antibody testing. This patient had positive point-of-care antigen testing. And yet this patient's PCR was negative. And that is something to consider. Yeah, and I think that we should be hearing loud and clear because I think a lot of people just hear the word PCR and they just take it for for you know, that's a hundred percent correct. So I'm very glad that you brought those up, uh, those ideas up. Um, Pete, can we go back to, can I just want to point something out on this slide, yeah. which has nothing yeah. to do with testing whatsoever. But the gentleman we see in the lower left hand corner here, who's wearing an N95 mask with a yellow valve on it, 
that has an exhalation valve, which is fine, which is fine. But I think uh, all of our EMS professionals who are on this webinar and are watching this should recognize that that is an unfiltered exhalation port. And we have seen patients who are positive for COVID-19 who are wearing masks just like that and are exhaling unfiltered COVID through that exhalation port um, despite a thought that um, it's otherwise keeping them safe and others around them safe. So maybe a concern. Well, listen, when, when, um, when, when EMS personnel are going into Home Depot to get their PPE, you know there's a problem, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, Absolutely. It's the, rea it's the reality of what, we're, what uh, the world we live in, but that's a great pickup there. Um, so you had mentioned the word diagnosis. I put on this slide here that there's so many people out there who have their own idea of how this test has to be used, whether it be diagnostic, am I immune, can I donate plasma? After I get the vaccine, God willing, when it gets here, did the vaccine work? Should we use it on everybody and, and do surveillance like they did in Santa Clara? What are your thoughts about just taking the test and just doing something with it? Or do you think that each of these has its own particular place in the world uh, that we live in today? What are your thoughts on how should we be using these tests? Yeah, I think that the answer depends on the day of the week. And I don't say that flippantly. I mean that truly. Uh, because that answer depends on where your local community is at with respect to viral spread. The institution of tests is going to be fundamentally different right now as we record this in New York City than it is in rural Wisconsin, right? Those are mm -hmm. two very different prevalences of disease um, and different sort of courses of pandemic. And it's going to drive very much a testing strategy. We think of phases. When we think of pandemic response, we think of phase one, two, three, four. And each one of those phases has a different um, environment in which it exists and a different uh, need for testing, a different answer, a different question that needs to be answered. So we can implement these tests probably in every single one of the ways that you have described here. We can use them to assist in diagnosis. We can use them to give us some information about immune status, if God willing it exists. We can use it to help drive convalescent plasma if that becomes a, an accepted and, and uh, needed treatment or prophylactic strategy. And obviously we'll need immunoassays when we think of vaccine immunogenicity. Um, so all of these things, the answer is yes, but doing so uh, only in the exact context of your immediate surrounding community, uh, understanding the circulating level of virus, understanding uh, the seroprevalence within your community, all of those things are critical facets when we talk about which tests to implement and how to implement. Right, which all points towards having a team of people who are directing either your local municipality or your region or even the state and even the country so that as these tests get rolled out, there's a thought process behind it. There's some algorithmic thought behind it. So uh, very well said, awesome. So again, I have this slide here because um, people want to use serology to diagnose acute or recent past disease. So let me pose this question to you that the naysayers out there will say, hey, why do you want to use blood to look for antibodies to these common viruses, right, RSV, parainfluenza, influenza, the ones we know very, very well. When they weren't, they're not used currently today, you had mentioned earlier PCR. 
They were not used routinely for SARS or MERS. So explain why suddenly for coronavirus, we should go, be going to serology. What are your thoughts on that, Rick? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think it's a great question. And my thoughts are that the reason we're doing this is very much the same reason that I'm treating a respiratory virus with heparin, right? Because we're in a <laughs> yeah. new world right now. Um, you know, there's, a, there's plenty of reasons why we uh, don't routinely use antibody testing to make diagnoses of common viruses. And the biggest reason for that is because many of those viruses are so morphologically similar. Uh, that antibody testing would be quite difficult. Um, but we do use antibody testing to diagnose some viruses, like uh, human immunodeficiency virus, right? That's one that's uh, pretty common for us to use that. Um, but here's the thing, is we are learning new things every single day. And we, to some degree, we have to dance with the one that brought us. And we have to use tests that not only may help us, but tests that are available. So at present, as we record this, um, doing a PCR on every single human being in the United States is not going to happen. Are we going to get to a point where it can happen? Absolutely. Are we going to get to a point where it needs to happen? I don't think so. Because again, it goes back to um, using uh, the uh, information we have and synthesizing it with the information we need. Um, and using serology as part of a broader test-based strategy really will add a lot of granular information into understanding where we are as well as where we've come from. Right, and I think it's just another piece of the puzzle, and we've, we've experienced it, you and I, because of, of how we're using these tests, and we're learning, and so it is, it's so fast, it's so new, it seems like, right, when you said heparin, who would ever think you're giving heparin to these people, and indeed they need it, here we are using other types of tests, so that's a, uh, that, that's a great piece of information, and I think that all of us need to keep our eyes open for pieces of information that could help us make that next great decision, so... Um, I want to switch gears here a little bit and really just talk about the antibodies real quick, um, mainly because, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in the lay public, and I know a lot of my folks in, in EMS, when, when we're bringing these tests in and looking at the M line and the G line, so I thought it'd be really good to just really quickly first talk about M and then we'll move to the next slide for G, but just a quick explanation about what each antibody is and why it's different. I'm going to leave most of this to you, um, but I am going to point out that this is uh, a general uh, diagram that you have put right here. I have, as I have implemented these tests more and as I move more into an operational, uh, operationalization of these tests, um, run up into um, what I've seen a lot of uh, extrapolation of, of graphs just like this, where we see IgM rising at 10 days, it's important. It's very important to remember as we talk about this, um, that we are still learning about the immune response to COVID-19 and how it responds um, and uh, how serological uh, immune response exists. Um, so there's still much more to parse through, but I do think that what you have here provides an excellent baseline understanding of what we're looking for. And I think what you're alluding to, what happened to me today, we have uh, someone in our city who um, is PCR positive, and the only reason she got tested is because she was exposed to somebody, but she has zero symptoms whatsoever, and decided to get a PCR test. It was positive. 
And so uh, we tested her. Again, we have no idea when or when she would have gotten exposed to this person. Um, and she's got her IgM positive. And it, it does seem like it was a lot less than 10 days ago that she got exposed. So are you trying to say here that we really don't know when the IgM or the early antigen, um, the early antibody is going gonna, is gonna to turn positive? So I wouldn't take this graphic you're saying for, for the truth, right, of exactly what's going to happen with COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you work with kids who have immune systems that are unbelievable, right, and will respond so much more quickly than perhaps the 78-year-old down the street. So, so much of this is all over the map. And, and in fact, fascinatingly, we've seen some recent publications that hinted at something called serologic inversion, that an IgG manifested pri uh, prior to IgM, and that took the world wow. by storm until it was recognized <laughs> that, no, it's just that um, the uh, buffers that are used to pull the IgG and IgM up the lateral flow and the same sort of chemicals that are used in ELISA um, react just more floridly with IgG than IgM, so they seem to react uh, faster. Mm. So, I mean, we are all over the map. Um, so <laughs> specifics here, I think, are important, but perhaps are not as important as general concepts like you're pointing out here. Perfect. Awesome. That's great. And now we have uh, IgG. So IgG is obviously the most common antibody we see. It's 75% of the total in circulation. And this is what is the protection uh, antibody. And this is the antibody that people are saying that if you have IgG, the question is, does this signal immunity? Does this mean that the next time you encounter the virus that your body will overcome it and you will not get sick again? But what do you say about this IgG antibody and what we know today about COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the holy grail to some extent. I don't know a single person who doesn't want to have an IgG. Everybody that I talk to thinks that in January they had a fever and it was because they had COVID and they just want to get a, a rapid test because they want to prove they have an IgG. And I'm suspecting that every single person listening to this says, yeah, me too, right? And so... Um, the thing is, we have no idea, right? So we have some insight that um, maybe 10% of people uh, develop no lasting immunity to COVID-19. We have some data that maybe 30% of people develop only weak lasting immunity to COVID-19. And then on top of all of that, all we're talking about here is serological immunity. All we're talking about is the presence of an immunoglobulin. We have no idea as to whether the presence of serological immunity has any correlation to clinical immunity. And while we can make inferences, we can look at previous respiratory viruses to drive some of our understanding, and we can look toward our basic understanding of immunology, I think anybody who says otherwise, anybody who comes down with a more firm statement of how serological immunity translates to clinical immunity or how serological immunity can be relied upon simply lying to us because there's so much that we do not know right now but we have to proceed forward with the science that we do know exactly and we're all looking forward to that science and there's some well done uh, there's some studies that are uh, very well put together they're being done currently and we're all looking forward to that Okay, and speaking of the antibody test, this was the ELISA test that Rick spoke about earlier. Again, it's a more comprehensive, more complex test. It looks for a titer. And again, it's, it involves 
going to the lab and using these little wells and capturing antibodies, again, it's important to just know that ELISA is an antibody test, but it quantifies that antibody titer. And so the question is, how reliable is this serology for diagnosing acute symptomatic COVID-19? Well, we know that the IgM may not be immediate, meaning it doesn't show early, so we may miss some early folks, right? Uh, the sensitivity may be highly variable, so early on, you may not be capturing people, and so that's another downside of these tests. And then, of course, and Rick, you alluded to this earlier, is that the false positives may be available, and they may be available for a number of reasons um, that uh, are not really related to the test itself, but to the fact that the person may have other things um, in their bloodstream that may co-react uh, with this test. So the status of current testing, here we go. Whoa, there's so many tests on the market. The latest count I have, Rick, is that the FDA's website has 100 tests. You had mentioned that four of these tests have an EUA, and we'll talk more about the FDA in a second here, but they, all these tests have their own kind of little data set. None of it has been peer-reviewed. How would you advise that fire chief out there, that EMS chief out there, that uh, city manager out there, um, when they get the next phone call from the next vendor, how would you advise them on how to tread lightly here when it comes to these types of tests? Yeah, so what we're talking about here is the rapid antibody tests. And there's no question that there are a number of tests out there that lack any sort of significant uh, quality assurance that there are a number of tests out there that just plainly spoken are, are terrible and should not be implemented. We have to remember that there are there's rules surrounding testing. You're, you're not allowed to just start making your own test and implementing it, right? Um, the FDA has relaxed many of their restrictions sounding, uh, surrounding implementation of testing, uh, but there are still restrictions. So when we talk about the use of rapid antibody tests, um, most people will only be permitted to use those tests which have an emergency use authorization and EUA. And at that, those tests are only permitted to be uh, used in labs which are certified uh, for moderate complexity testing via CLIA, right? That's, so these are sort of um, certification and inspection paradigms that already exist. There are uh, a number of tests out there that don't have emergency use authorization and the current guidance requires that those tests can only be utilized after a validation process that has been done by a lab that is certified for high complexity tests via CLIA. So there's a lot out there, right? You can't just start taking tests and doing them at the bedside in your office. Uh, you can't start doing rapid tests in the ambulance. You can't start doing them at the station. You, you just can't. It's not permitted. Now, there are going to be state-by-state -state modifications to that. There are going to be states that, um, from a more governmental perspective, perform validation or issue waivers for uh, performance of these tests in other settings. But until that's the case, the purchase of large numbers of these tests for implementation would be folly um, because of the restrictions that still exist surrounding uh, implementation of these tests. And that's very well said, and I think people should uh, heed that warning and understand what the restrictions are. And so, 
uh, you had mentioned it, and so CLIA is the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments. These are federal and state uh, sanctioned amendments that do regulate every lab test that occurs. So if you had, for example, a surgical center and you were running some basic labs, you would have to go through a number of steps. Uh, you'd have to go on all these different uh, educational webinars and get certified. They'd come out to your surgical center. They would visit to make sure everything looks okay. And then they would only allow you to do the test that you say you're going to do. And so you had mentioned CLIA, um, and CLIA wave test would be like a glucometer. And my son is diabetic, so we have that little glucometer. You buy it at CVS. That does not need CLIA uh, certification. But, uh, Rick, you had just mentioned that the non-wave test, that the moderate complexity uh, uh, lab uh, certificate is those tests that have the EUA, only four of them, and all the other ones, all 96 other ones, are now defaulted into high complexity, which means that these are labs that you would find, for example, at hospitals. And so if you are looking at any of these tests, just understand that there is no waiver at this point unless you have something coming from the state uh, as well. Now, one question on that, Rick, that I have for you is if a test is not being used to give medical advice um, and just being used for, let's say, an epi epidemiologic study, uh, do you need CLIA there? Well, there, there's a bit of a double-edged sword there. So no, if you're using a test and not, and I would always check with an attorney here, but if you're using a test for in vitro um, diagnostic purposes and you're sort of using it as part of an experimental push, uh, that's a different consideration. Of course, that being said, then you're going to start to fall under regulations that surround experimentation. Um, so that's really important. Um, that um, we there are rules, right? There's <laughs> still rules that exist, and we have sure. to follow those rules. And the reason is those rules protect us, but perhaps more importantly, those rules protect our patients. And it's not because anybody listening to this is going to go out there and start um, doing tests and doing them uh, with any sort of malice. Um, but there are plenty of those out there who might implement these tests inappropriately, who might implement these tests um, with an eye not toward the patient's best interest, but perhaps toward other uh, priorities, including their bottom line. Great. Well said. And I think everyone should heed that warning and understand CLIA before moving forward. So, um, and before we get to the end here, I want to talk a little bit about IgG, and we talked about, again, it's more of a delayed response, um, but people want to know, can I determine immunity here? Again, um, the sensitivity, again, you had mentioned this earlier, the reports from China and some from Italy, that 10% of people are not making antibody. You said earlier 30% have a weak antibody response. I mean, that's, that's significant information, and we've actually seen that with some of our testing. We've had people who have been sick for a couple of days, mild symptoms, and they had no antibody response. And then a, a doctor from Italy came on our webinar the other day and said that he had tested an ELISA that was a high titer antibody. A few weeks later, it's all gone. And so uh, very interesting information uh, with respect to immunity um, and then, of course, again, you have the false positive. So anything else you wanted to add on that? Well, the, the false positive piece is unbelievably important. Um, so when we talk about the use of uh, uh, serology to 
identify IgG and to begin to identify those who may have serological immunity, the possibility of a false positive IgG is a scary one. And there's plenty of uh, literature out there. There's plenty of discussion that there could uh, hypothetically be cross-reactivity among many of these lateral flow immunoassays and commonly circulating coronavirus. Now, in my experience, that has not been the case. In my experience, having run at this point hundreds upon hundreds of these tests, I've yet to identify a false positive. And very much that's likely due to the exact manufacturer that I'm utilizing. Um, that being said, um, the possibility of a false positive must always be considered and is one of the reasons why a proper validation study needs to be undertaken by any test that lacks an EUA, and in fact, likely by any test that um, has an EUA as well. Right, and I think that uh, it's a t tremendously important uh, to understand that you don't want someone going out there saying, I'm immune, when they're really not, so a uh, word to the wise on that. Okay, herd immunity. So we've heard this, we've heard this term before that, um, you know, we're going to have herd immunity and the entire population is going to be, uh, you know, immune and so forth. But we're, we're very far away from this, obviously, and uh, this is going to require vaccination to be achieved. Would you agree with that, Rick? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that um, vaccination is the end of this road um, and we're still quite far away from it. Um, and uh, I think it's all something that we are very eagerly awaiting. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, again, if you have antibodies, am I safe? Again, you mentioned this earlier. This is still a big unknown. There's trials that are needed. And, you know, there are examples of viruses that you can go get a test for. You can see exactly what your titer is. And based on that titer, they can say you're immune. We don't have that currently uh, with COVID-19. And so, again, a big unknown uh, for all those people listening out there. And then uh, before we get towards the end, I wanted to say here that um, many people are talking about this as a large trial going on right now through the Mayo Clinic. Uh, this happens to be Lieutenant Scott Myers, uh, one of our lieutenants at uh, one of the cities that I'm privileged to work with. And uh, he got very sick. Uh, he got his antibodies, uh, he, I should say he got his plasma donated and it actually went to a fellow firefighter. So. Uh, we're you know, excited to see that he's uh, participating in research, and we're hoping for the best uh, for our colleague. And then at the end of the day, where does this serology fit in? And I think all of us have seen this, that there is a roadmap to reopening. The FDA is involved. The CDC is involved. The White House Task Force is involved. Uh, a lot of people are involved in trying to get this thing reopened. So we know that's what's on everyone's mind. That's what's on on the people's uh, minds who's listening here today, uh, and it's on America's mind. So you see here that there's lots of people out there who are anxious to get out of their house, um, and they want to get back to work, they want to reopen the economy. We just have to do this in a very uh, streamlined and very thoughtful manner. And so I want to come back here now to this uh, case that I started off with to show you why this was a little bit more complicated for me. Um, because this girl I had mentioned to you uh, went, to the, went to the ER once, got a PCR. Uh, that was uh, her first negative PCR, still symptomatic. Went back home. They told her, you're going to be fine. Um, several days later, she starts to get fever again, goes back to the ER, and now she's still sick on day 21. They run another PCR, and boom, now she has her second 
PCR negative, but she's still sick. And so, again, going back to your paradigm earlier, Rick, where this person should not come back to work, obviously. We did an antibody test on her, and it showed G and M. And so the antibody test uh, worked there. The PCR test was negative. She's still symptomatic. And so we had to take the entire clinical picture into account. Um, and so that, that ED evaluation resulted in her going back home again. And I'm happy to report here now we're on day 24, and she's doing much better. So um, all these tests have to be taken together. The information has to be uh, synthesized by people who actually understand not just the clinical but the laboratory tests uh, that they're finding. And here is the test that we did on her. So she's IgG and IgM positive. So, uh, Rick, the final slide here before we finish and we uh, open up for some questions here is that uh, you were generous enough to actually send me this algorithm a few weeks ago, but uh, do you want to talk about this algorithm and how you plan on using it? Sure. So this is one of many algorithms that we've put together for possible implementation of uh, lateral flow immunoassays rapid antibody tests, uh, again, in the proper clinical scenario. Um, so first, we dichotomize it into either asymptomatic or symptomatic. Um, so what we see down in the symptomatic, that's kind of the easiest, that if somebody comes in and they're coughing and they have a fever, uh, and they have a positive antibody, well, you know, a duck is a duck, and, and you can call it a COVID infection and be done with it. If that person is negative, however, you kind of need to follow it up really with PCR, right? Um, and that's really the key there. And this is probably best thought of as a PCR sparing strategy, uh, a PCR sparing strategy for testing. And I think that that's fairly straightforward. And and makes a lot of sense. When we talk about asymptomatic utilization, we begin to get a little hairier, right? And asymptomatic utilization should really only be applied, again, in a very well-defined clinical scenario and really cannot just kind of be thrown up against the wall to see what sticks. Um, because many of the answers are going to be dependent upon baseline disease prevalence, but when the test is being implemented and, and how it's being done and so many other things. Um, so we have a little bit of an example here, which in fact uh, we use to help uh, limit our um, release of our paramedics. Um, so uh, this is, uh, as we all know, um, CDC guidance, uh, permits the limitation of quarantine of those with medium and high risk exposures when staffing levels have reached critical uh, um, levels. Um, so we have used this as an additional layer of safety on top of that, um, that instead of permitting immediate return to work, we're fortunate enough to have paramedic agencies, and, and let's be honest, funding to sustain the addition of a, a risk stratification layer of uh, lateral flow immunoassay testing on top of that to make sure we're not accidentally sending somebody back to work who could potentially be a risk for their very own patients. So there's so many different ways to implement this. And in fact, just yesterday, I, I was fortunate enough to implement this in a, in a very large spectrum uh, outbreak investigation where we implemented these tests among truly hundreds of patients uh, to help identify who may be uh, at risk for 
uh, viral shed and, and for uh, infection. And it's just so critically important to only do so uh, when you're able to have a distinct clinical scenario, have uh, someone with the uh, knowledge and uh, you know insight to take the test information and apply it appropriately, um, and to only do so when you have the capability to act upon the test results. I tell you what, uh, it sounds like you've done some fascinating work. Your state is lucky to have you. Um, I've kind of felt like Phil Donahue here a little bit, uh, learning along the way, which I, I, which I knew would happen. Uh, but Rick, uh, first of all, thanks for uh, joining us today in this uh, webinar, and thanks for you know, forwarding all the information that you've had and you've learned along the way. And um, looking forward to um, sending home the folks here with some take-home messages, and then we'll open it up for questions. But I think we've said this from the beginning that serology should not be used as a standalone test, and it's not really acceptable for using that exact response for an acute case diagnosis. So just, just be very aware of that. Uh, the level of immunity post-exposure is still unknown and requires more detailed studies. So um, again, just like Rick said, if you're hearing something uh, to the contrary, they're probably not giving you the right information. And I think that we still don't understand the role that antibody testing will play in certain populations. You know, you heard uh, Rick yesterday went to do an outbreak investigation. I think that sounds appropriate. Nursing homes may sound appropriate as well, but you really have to kind of define that population. And then as far as using serology and convalescent plasma therapy, that's still undergoing uh, clinical trials. If you're going to do the testing, know the clear regulations and abide by them. And then I would say that the return to work will require well-thought-out algorithms that should include several types of tests, and it should include people around the table uh, who understand what these tests uh, bring to the table, and they have the clinical uh, acumen to make those decisions for the people that they're uh, leading forward. So with that, uh, Rick, you have any final thoughts before we open it up to questions? No, no, no final thoughts other than to say that um, everyone who's participating in this is an ambassador, so much so. Uh, these are, everybody who's participating in this is a knowledgeable and trusted clinician. And understanding these things is so critical, uh, critical in your own patient care practice, critical for yourself and your family, but also critical as a messenger out into the community. So I truly appreciate everyone who is engaging uh, in knowledge sharing and engaging in the conversation surrounding COVID-19. Awesome. Great. All right, Jonathan, let's open it up for questions. All right. Thank you so much to Dr. Antevi and Dr. Pescatore. We're now going to open up the discussion to our audience. Uh, do you think there will ever come a time when testing will be so accessible and cheap that healthcare workers could be tested on a uh, weekly basis? Um, Peter, you want to take that one? Sure, uh, Susan, yeah, I do think that these tests are going to become widely available. I think that you'll see in the next coming uh, weeks to months that these tests are going to be flooding the market. You'll find them in many different locations from uh, your doctor's office to CVS and Walmart to um, even uh, hospitals who want to test their healthcare providers. But as we mentioned in the webinar, because these tests have some restrictions on them at this point in time, I think once that gets figured out, and these tests can be applied more broadly to um, the entire 
uh, population, I think you will see those tests uh, being applied more broadly. All right, thanks, Peter. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, a couple questions about um, physicians and, and testing patients. Aaron is asking, state governors are starting to promote antibody, antibody testing and stating that the availability will be more widespread within the next few weeks. Uh, is this advised uh, regarding PCPs uh, starting to test their patients who they suspect had COVID-19? Um, and on the same topic, New York City just sent a letter out to healthcare providers asking them not to do antibody testing right now due to the lack of reliability. Yet other governors, um, such as the one in Tennessee, are pushing physicians to utilize antibody testing when it's available within the next few weeks. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Um, Rick, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of questions in one, right? So let's start a little bit from the end regarding New York City's letter discussing the use of antibody testing. You know, I think that every time we see a public health-driven message, we have to understand that um, there's a lot behind that. Maybe not necessarily just the evidence, but also strategic, operational, and logistical considerations. I think it's important that we remember when we talk about antibody testing as a whole, we could be talking about any number of things. We could be talking about, just as we've gone over, uh, point of care, lateral flow, immunoassays. We could be talking about IgG testing, IgM testing, um, microparticle testing, ELISA testing. So there's a lot there. But it sort of returns to the same thing again and again, that um, antibody testing has a role. And anybody who says otherwise uh, is uninformed. How that uh, role plays out is uh, very much dependent on so many factors, including a baseline prevalence within a community, including availability of testing and including a rational application of that testing. So while certainly in an area of low prevalence and an area um, uh, where uh, many people may not yet have contracted the disease, rapid antibody testing makes relatively little sense in that scenario, uh, whereas in high prevalence scenarios, it may make more sense. So certainly this is going to mean something different all over the country. And because of the fundamental heterogeneity of populations across the country, you're going to see mixed messaging. But again, ultimately what it comes down to is taking a look at your disease prevalence, taking a look at the questions you're asking, and of course, making sure that the test you're implementing has been well validated to give you the answers you see. Thanks, Rick. Uh, how about a 14-day quarantine period? We have a question from Edward here. What's the maximum amount of time a person may remain symptomatic with COVID? A couple of members who have tested positive in my department have remained symptomatic after their 14-day quarantine uh, period after testing positive. Any um, any feedback on that? Let me grab that one, yeah, Pete, I, because yeah, th there's yeah, a ahead. lot there, first off. The, the, the question, we need to recognize that the question is fundamentally wrong. So remember that persons who are symptomatic isolate, persons who are asymptomatic or, or, and are um, uh, persons who have not yet tested positive for the disease but have been exposed, they quarantine. There is there should be no such thing as a 14-day quarantine period after testing positive. Somebody who tests positive enters an isolation schema that has been pushed out by um, the uh, uh, CDC. Now, 
um, patients can have disease anywhere ranging from no clinical disease to weeks upon weeks of clinical disease. Um, so we have to be careful about our messaging. We have to be careful that we read what is out there and look at the guidance that does exist um, and make sure we're synthesizing that correctly. So my answer to this would be, I think maybe there's a bit of mixed messaging and remembering that when we talk about persons who are symptomatic and positive, they are in isolation. And from there, discontinuation of isolation is based off of CDC either uh, testing based or non testing based strategy and uh yeah and then I think that that's they're very well said and then i'll the, what I'll add on is just a um uh, an, an individual case where we had somebody who was symptomatic for three and a half weeks with negative p c r s you know first positive p c r s and then negative p c r s and so just like Rick was saying, you really have to follow the the, the algorithm uh those patients still need to be isolated and then you follow the algorithm once they become symptom-free. So um, uh, I think it's a case-by-case, case, but we are seeing people who are symptomatic for longer than 14 days for sure. Along those lines, uh, another question here. We've had employees test positive, and it took at least 21 days before they tested negative. Uh, neither one showed signs or symptoms. Should we still require two tests before letting them return to work, uh, especially when test kits are scarce? Rick, you could take that one. You're dealing with that. Sure. I know. Sure. So it's a very good question and um, one that um, is being evaluated by organizations all across the country. I will point you towards CDC guidance on discontinuation of isolation for persons who have tested positive, which does discuss the scenario that when testing um, materials uh, may not be immediately available, a non-test-based strategy for return to work may be uh, more tenable. Uh, there is further guidance that breaks that down into critical infrastructure personnel, EMS workers, et cetera. Um, so uh, there is a non-test-based strategy. There is a test-based strategy. Um, those are uh, worth considering um, uh, as both have different science surrounding them uh, and implementing the one that best uh, fits your uh, practice. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just add on to that again by, by another case that's kind of befuddled us a little bit is because we have somebody who's symptom-free for over a week, uh, PCR negative, but now is still showing IgM antibody positive. And so, again, it's just important to understand that you shouldn't create protocols that put you in a position where you're now keeping people at home who are PCR negative, asymptomatic, who could return to work, um, and you're keeping those folks at home. And so... I think it's very important to understand how long these tests can show positive. Some of them will turn negative um, at, at different times than others, and they're just not all exactly accurate. So uh, these are all things to take into consideration. With uh, the variety of tests available, is there a place that people can go to find a list of the valid, currently available antibody tests in labs? Rick, do you know of any exact uh, list for for those? For me, I know that the FDA has a list of, uh, of, of you know at least the rapid antibody tests that are on their list. Although the FDA has not independently eva uh, validated those tests, except for the ones that have received EUA, as we discussed. And I really do think that whatever test you decide to go with, you really need to do your due diligence at your agency and evaluate those tests. Maybe and do uh, some validation on your own. But, uh, you know, word, word to the wise here that you really need to dig in, find out exactly what you're going to be going with, and have some expertise on your team. You know, someone like a Rick, a public health person, EMS medical director, uh, someone who can uh, guide you through not just what tests to use, 
but then how to use that test appropriately. Yeah, I, I echo everything Pete said. Uh, the FDA does have a list of those tests that have received um, emergency use authorization. You, you can also Google SARS-CoV-2 diagnostic uh, um, pipeline, and there are lists of all those that are currently in that diagnostic pipeline for subsequent um, FDA consideration. If you have the ability at a, a CLIA-certified high-complexity lab to perform your own validations, that is another option for you. Got a question from an EMT at SeaWorld. Uh, if places follow the lead of Georgia and reopen, what are your thoughts on the best way to screen people for public events? I work as an EMT at SeaWorld. I'm worried about this. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one. Um, th that uh, should not be happening. So there, there, there should not be anything that we move to that you would need to be screened individually prior to entering an individual event. Um, what, that, what that does is, if that is required, if that sort of scenario would be required, it, it speaks toward um, that the reopening has happened too soon, right? So we know that when we talk about reopening, everybody wants to reopen. Um, we have to make sure we do so uh, appropriately and safely and can only do so once the baseline level of infectivity within the community falls below a certain threshold anyway. And admission to facilities or public events um, it, from a, a micro perspective like this, like an individual event, will absolutely not be one that is guided by a test in place and make a determination either walk away or enter the facility. All right, so we have uh, Bruce listening in today. I have, a, I have a question about the concept of titer with IgG or antibody. Much like hepatitis B, when the titers fall off, can you explain the concept of how the body stays programmed to fight the disease? My agency considered our IgG test as a 30-day look back only. Rick, you could take that. Sure. So. Um, we don't know. That's the first thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. We have little to no idea what IgG in the setting of COVID means. We don't know if it leads to clinical uh, safety. We simply don't know. But a basic um, overview of immunology would be that IgG is, an, is a durable antibody. It's one that remains in the body and is how our body responds more briskly to invaders. And that's why we get uh, vaccines when we're kids and um, we uh, have an immune response that's able to recognize disease and, and immediately respond to same. As far as agencies currently considering IgG tests um, as a 30 days look back, I don't know necessarily what that means except to say that there is a lot of uh, eagerness to use um, IgG um, as an, a, a way to, to indicate some level of serological immunity and mobilize critical infrastructure personnel and healthcare workers back into the workforce. Um, so as far as how that goes, that is definitely something that we will be exploring more in the coming weeks. Um, and doing so is certainly contingent upon a thorough understanding of the test and um, understanding that uh, serological immunity at present does not necessarily translate to clinical immunity. Right. And, and to Rick, I'm, I'm going to add on a quick uh, a personal story again. Uh, again, I'm getting a thousand phone calls from people and someone sent me their mom's lab results and it was in ELISA. So it gave her, it gave her a titer. And he sent me the result, and he says, what does this mean? <laughs> and I said, I, nobody knows. Uh, so she ended up having IgG antibodies, 
and uh, it, was a, it was a singular test done in a single point in time. And so she was given a test, which I'm sure costs a good bit of money, that they, no one can give her the correct answer to. So I think that uh, your answer is exactly on point, and people need to understand that we don't really know, and this is not like hepatitis B, where they know what value or what titer does confer immunity long-term. This is not the same thing for COVID-19. Uh, and how about uh, false positives? William wants to know, how do other types of coronavirus uh, affect test results? Can they give a false positive? Uh, is the test looking for particular factors of COVID-19? So, so I, I guess I'll start, you know. Yeah, okay, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, Rick, yeah. Okay, so this is the question, right? So is there a possibility that we will identify antibody that is from a previously circulating coronavirus. And there's been a lot of talk in the clinical laboratory and lay community about previously circulating coronaviridae. There's a couple of strains that are rattled off, which were taken out of um, an industry uh, sort of uh, paper jacket. And it's a consideration, right? So the first thing we need to understand is, can they give a false positive? Yes, but that obviously is going to depend on which test you're using, which goes back to what Pete has really been harping on, which I think is the most important point here, is thorough validation of your tests, right? So um, there are tests that have received FDA approval, there are, there are tests that haven't received FDA approval, and um, understanding the sensitivity and specificity of those tests is critically important. That being said, we have to understand that when we use a test, an indirect tests like this, um, ducks quack, right? And so if you have a patient who manifests an IgM, for example, in the setting of, you know, global coronavirus pandemic, there's pretty good, pretty good likelihood that that's due to the circulating pandemic coronavirus and not some other random coronavirus. Um, but is it a consideration for the detection of IgG? Absolutely. Um, and uh, making sure that, that your test has specificity to parse out uh, between those previous coronaviridae and SARS-CoV-2 is critically important. It, it's notable that there are um, some manufacturers that um, use uh, not uh, SARS-CoV-2 as their antibody conjugate. Um, but it's also notable that there are some manufacturers that use an antibody conjugate for the spike protein, which is you know, fairly specific for SARS-CoV-2. And while it may have um, some cross-reactivity, it seems likely that most of that cross-reactivity would be with SARS-1, um, which, oh, I'm sorry, one second. Oh, that's not for me. Um, it would be with SARS-1, uh, which is, uh, I would argue, somewhat acceptable. And how about the uh, various types of sampling available? Tom wants to know, can you review briefly the various types of sampling, blood, saliva, nasal swabs, stool sample, and discuss their uses and their pros and cons? I guess I can start. I can start with that because we're going through that right now. Uh, with respect to the blood sampling, that's, you know, what you're referring to is the antibody testing. And, again, you can do a drop of blood. You can use a serum like we talked about for the ELISA. But then we're, what we're grappling with now, and I'd love to hear Rick's comment on this, is, you know, how do we test people after uh, for their PCR? And the nasal swab, if anyone on the call has had that, it's the equivalent of a brain biopsy. And so um, it turns out, like in places in San Antonio, where they switch from nasal swab to the spit test, um, everyone stopped going to the nasal swab. This is from the fire department. And they, they only wanted the spit test because they didn't want to keep going back and get that biopsy again. So... Um, we are we are currently looking at all the options, but just heard uh, actually this morning about 
um, people doing this spit test and they send it out to a lab and they get results in 24 hours with very high sensitivity and specificity. And this is from a hospital who ran 30,000 of these tests. So I, you know, I do think that, um, and as far as stool, maybe, maybe Rick can address that, but I've heard that the, the stool test may find the RNA, but those are not of live virus. So I'm not really familiar with the stool uh, sampling, but I'm going to pass on that one myself. <laughs> yeah, so each each one of these uh, types of tests has litany pros, litany cons, and just so many operational considerations. So you know, certainly when we talk about nasal swab, we can go even further. Are we talking about a foam nasal swab, a dry swab, a swab that needs to go in viral transport media, one that needs to go in saline media? Are we talking about um, a uh, cotton swab? Are we talking about we only have access to calcium alginate swabs? I mean, the list goes on here. Um, but what it comes down to is every single one of these has a pro, has a con. Um, saliva quite easy, but uh, there's a, you know a reasonable question to be had about um, its comparison to nasal swab because viruses love to live in our nasal pharynx and on our nasal cilia. So there's so much here, um, and that in itself is a webinar all on its own. Um, but I think it really <laughs> does drive the point um, that testing is not one thing. Testing is a million different things um, that can answer a million different questions and be used in a million different ways. Thanks, Rick. Uh, so John's joining us today uh, and asks if a PCR is negative but the IgM is positive, is that person contagious to others? Right. So that that's a situation that I'm having currently, and um, you know I think that if if the person is not doesn't have the virus in their nasopharynx, and um, again the nasopharynx may be negative, but you still may have it in your lung. I mean, I don't really have the answer to that, and, and maybe, you know, I know Rick could probably give a better answer than I would here, but um, the IgM, um, we, I don't think we should be using it for infectivity because I think you'll end up having a lot of people sitting at home, um, you know, for the wrong reason. So um, the answer I would say is no to that, but I would love to hear what Rick says to that. Yeah, so I think it's a, a very much, again, it depends type question. So um, it depends. Is the um, PCR negative at the exact same time as the IgM was pulled? Is there any indication of previous illness? Um, is, uh, is this an outbreak investigation? Is this a random uh, implementation of the test? Um, it, it very much depends and uh, certainly highlights the importance of uh, framing every testing combination. PCR, uh, I, um, antibody testing, needs to be framed in the right um, clinical scenario. So if a PCR is negative but the IgM is positive in a patient who has cough, fever, shortness of breath, is that person contagious to others? Yes. Um, if, a, if a PCR is negative but the IgM is positive in somebody who's living in Aruba and has had no contact with the, uh, contact with the virus, that's a false positive IgM, if that makes sense, right? So there's so much uh, more uh, to consider in every single one of these scenarios. So our listeners today are primarily in the uh, EMS space, obviously, so let's talk a little bit about that. Next question, what role do you think that pre-hospital care should play in testing in this pandemic, and why do you think EMS is not being leveraged as much in the testing of the general public? Well, um, I'll start with that, that currently there are some agencies, you know, uh, that are near me in like Miami-Dade and so forth who are going out and they're performing the PCR uh, swab and they're sending it into labs. But again, I think we have to go back to the, uh, the restrictions, the ability to do the test properly. And so I think that before we get into doing that, 
we have to really understand uh, what the restrictions are for an EMS agency to do those tests. Um, do they have the appropriate training if they are allowed to do those tests? But I definitely think that EMS will play a role, and they should play a role. Uh, it's just a question of uh, what tests, the, the, uh, the ability of, that, of the user to perform that test, and the restrictions behind it. Thanks, Peter. Uh, so Greg has a question about for-profit uh, testing services. People getting an antibody test from a for-profit testing business may be getting a test that hasn't been validated, but it is on the FDA list of tests. Uh, do you have any advice for the buyers using these uh, for-profit labs? Rick, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, so that is a very hot button question. I will tell you that there are states that have outlawed this. Um, and I think that that is somewhat informative. Um, you, tests should be interpreted in, in the correct uh, scenario. If there's a lab that is doing so, is performing a test in the uh, presence and under the direction of a um, uh, licensed independent medical practitioner, um, that's fantastic. Um, but uh, always approaching all of these with some amount of skepticism. Right. And then the, the, what, what I'll add on to that is that I've also heard that there's going to be regulations allowing pharmacists to run these tests. And I'm not sure how, how the, those group, that group of people can give any, any better advice than a, than a physician. But I will say that if there, there are people coming to your home you know, A, are they, do they have the proper guidelines and restrictions and, and, and certifications to do so? Are they collecting the data on that specific test to see if those tests are really truly working? Or are they just trying to make a buck? So I'd be, I'd be very careful uh, when with, with doing those uh, types of things and just uh, I, I would do it in a very uh, kind of up and up manner to make sure that you're not getting a test that's going to give you the wrong answer and people giving you information that they shouldn't be giving you and then God forbid you getting sick because you were given misinformation. So um, I think I think it's the wild, wild west. Things are being done in reverse. Uh, the FDA normally approves a test. Uh, here they're doing it in reverse. They're asking, they're, they're, they put the test on a list and then they're asking them to validate the test and then they'll get an EUA. So uh, it's, it's the wild, wild west and it's kind of scary time right now. Thanks, Peter. Uh, interesting question coming to us from Alaska. We have about 3,000 seafood workers and fishermen coming to town by May 15th to start the fishing season. Uh, the canneries are restricting the workers to stay, uh, restricting them to stay in the cannery area, and also they are staying isolated for the 14 days. Should we require them to be tested prior to being on the line? And if so, what test would you use, the rapid PCR or something else? And can we trust that testing? So that's, that's a, a great question. question. <laughs> that's a really great question, um, and it, there are a lot of considerations there. I, I imagine I, I um, extrapolating here, I may be incorrect, and I apologize if that's the case. But it, this may be a, a population who is more vulnerable, perhaps has um, uh, limited access to follow-on care. Uh, perhaps this is a, um, a group of workers that um, have uh, community or cultural practices that may. Um, change their basic risk level uh, of uh, viral contraction and spread. So all of these things are tremendously important when thinking about um, 
if testing is needed or beneficial and, and which testing should be done. I, I can say that I, I would not use rapid PCR, that is the Abbott ID now, for 3,000 workers because it'll never get done. Um, but um, there, there is a lot of consideration that could be given to looking at workers who are inextricably within a high congregate setting like this and giving really strong consideration to what questions you'd like to answer um, and implementing testing that that answers those questions appropriately. Peter, do you want to add anything on that? Nope, I'm good. I'm, and I'm, actually, I'm actually in another location. So that was great. That was great. I'm good there. Got it. Uh, okay, so we'll move on to the next one. Uh, how about what's going on in other countries? Have other countries made promising tests that aren't yet approved by the FDA, and should we or can we uh, start to use them here? Uh, I guess I, um, Rick alluded to this in the in the webinar, but um, I know Israel is working on that uh, uh, bioelectronics uh, item, and I think that's pretty exciting. Rick, is there other is there any other are there any other tests that you know of that Show promise? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tests out there. Um, there are direct antigen tests, which I think are the most exciting thing out there right now. The uh, because, as you can imagine, a direct antigen test, particularly if paired with a direct antibody uh, uh, antibody test, you know, having point of care information about um, antigen and antibody, you know, regardless of the sensitivity and specificity, of course, those would need to be weighed. That is tremendously powerful. Um, so if I had to see um, a future here, um, and if I had to be a little bit optimistic about that future, I would personally be very excited for a uh, viable and uh, diagnostically successful rapid antigen test. That's a good lead in to our next question here. Overall, what, uh, what are some of the reasons you think we're having such a hard time with uh, COVID testing overall? Is it because the disease is so complicated or so new? Uh, does it have anything to do with how quickly it arrived? Uh, any thoughts there? I can start there. Um, the, sure. the answer is yes. Um, and, and I say that because the problems with COVID testing are litany and it's very much been a game of whack-a-mole. Um, when we talk about nasal PCR swabs, for example, um, we have seen shortages in collection kits, literally the kinds used to obtain the um, sample. And once that was resolved, we had um, shortages of the viral transport media, and then we had shortages of the extraction reagent for the PCR, and then we had bottlenecking and throttling of the ability to run PCR through. Um, and then we had bad uh, sort of unreliable primers for the PCR process. There's so many different ways that this can fall through. Um, and we have along the way um, had to sort of patch those holes as we move forward. And one of the reasons that was so difficult is just as you say here, is that uh, the disease came on so quickly and hit us um, in a bit of an unprepared way. Um, so the answer again, I think is yes. Um, and uh, I don't think any of those problems are going to go away anytime soon. We're just going to, uh, each time along the way, consider to continue to whack those moles down as we put together a, a comprehensive and cohesive testing schema. All right. Thanks, Rick. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions here. Again, thanks to uh, Rick and Peter for hanging on over time. Answering I'm so sorry. I have coming. to jump off and, and run okay. to a thing. So thank you all so much. Thanks so much, Rick. Rick, uh, Rick Peter, thank you. Peter. Can you uh, yeah, John, hang I, on I, for a couple more? 
I got you. I got time for two more. Then I'm starting a press conference here in a few minutes, but I'm good. Yeah, go. Shoot. All right. Sounds great. Um, just a couple more here. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a uh, straightforward solution right now to the testing conundrum. Do you have um, advice that you can provide to EMS agencies, medical, uh, medical directors, and chiefs? Yeah, so I, I, I do. I think that um, if you can connect with a an academic center, uh, get yourself um, a study going, an IRB going, that allows you to do some testing under, uh, not, not just for research purposes, but it allows you to validate what you're doing. You should not be doing these tests in isolation without collecting your data. So that's what we've done. We've submitted an IRB to the state, and now we're going to be screening lots of people. And we're not going to be giving those people medical advice. We're not going to be using those tests to make any diagnosis. But what we're doing is we're also going to be uh, following those tests up with PCR tests. And we're, we're going to do it in a very programmatic manner that follows the letter of the law. And it allows people to get the correct answers that they need. And so I do think that the future is a place where testing will be done um, kind of more locally. So you don't have to go anywhere. And then there, there's testing already available today where you can, like, let's say, give a sample of saliva, send it out to a CLIA-appropriate lab, and then that lab will run the test for you. So your personnel shouldn't have to leave the department. They shouldn't have to go home and wait four or five days for a test result. So I think the streamlining of care, of testing, will, uh, should happen. It should be happening now. People should be making plans for that. And so that if you have employees that are sick, they need to get back to work, they have to do more than one test, that the whole process isn't just something that's like sludge. And so we've worked really hard on trying to figure that out. And I do think that the future is such that EMS uh, and really governmental agencies will be able to handle those things uh, in a very organized manner. And I'm happy to, if people want to reach out to me afterwards to give them more information. All right, great. We're going to uh, wrap up with uh, some closing remarks about easing uh, fears and anxieties that are out there right now. Uh, how do you suggest, Peter, that we ease the fears and anxieties of healthcare workers regarding testing right now? What are some good uh, leadership tactics that physicians can use when communicating to their people? I'll tell you what, the biggest thing we did here is that we started several WhatsApp groups. And everyone is in constant communication. We give communication to our membership um, very frequently. They know that their medical director is highly involved. Um, I do teleconferencing with them when they're on the scene with, with, with families who don't want to go. We're seeing families who are anxious about going to the emergency department because they don't want to contract COVID. So I think communication is the number one thing. And, you know, communication not just within your agency, but uh, outwardly. Like we're about to do a press conference right now on plasma donation. And that came about because we just, we, we told all the agencies here in Broward County, hey, let's spread the word. And one person took that on, and here we are about to do a press conference. And so there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. You should have some expertise, people who will know exactly what's going on day-to-day, uh, minute-to-minute, and that they can update the team, update the chief, update the city manager. You have to be nimble. You have to be quick. Um, and I think that the, um, your, you know, our, our EMS professionals deserve that. They, uh, all, the, all the folks who are risking their lives to save others deserve that. And if they're, if they're not getting that, then I think that's unfortunate. But I think that's the key, in my opinion, to be a leader like that. 
Okay, we're going to wrap up for today. Our thanks again to Dr. Peter Antevi and Dr. Rick Pescator for uh, putting together the webinar, staying overtime to answer questions, and sharing their knowledge. Uh, one last time, we'd like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring the webinar and bringing the presentation to you. Um, one final note for our audience, we've recorded this presentation. It will be archived and available shortly on our webinars page. That's at emsworld.com slash webinars. And then looking ahead to our next presentation, that's going to be Wednesday, April 29th. We will uh, convene a roundtable of EMS providers from Seattle, New York, and uh, New Orleans. They will be sharing their experiences handling this pandemic uh, in those hard-hit cities and sharing stories from the front lines. You can register for that at emsworld.com slash webinars. Lastly, if you're not on our email list, please go to emsworld.com. Click subscribe in the top bar. You can get on our list to receive e-newsletters and uh, the updates on all of our upcoming presentations. Um, again, from all of us at EMS World, thank you to our listeners. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll connect again on the next webinar. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Antebi. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020, at EMS World Expo.